This is Scientific American Science Talk, posted on April 24th, 2020. I'm Steve Mursky. And under our current often lockdown situation, it's still really important to try to get some exercise. Judy Foreman is the author of the new book, Exercise is Medicine, How Physical Activity Boosts Health and Slows Aging. She's a former nationally syndicated health columnist for the Boston Globe, L.A. Times, Baltimore Sun, and other places, and an author for the Oxford University Press. We spoke by phone. There's an overarching theme to the book. You don't talk about it all the time, but it's really important to look at the human body and exercise in the light of our evolutionary background. Well, I mean, if you think about it, we evolved to hunt for our food um, because we needed dinner. And uh, that uh, allowed us to, our genes allowed us to run around and outdistance, outpace animals, just chase them till they drop before we did. Um, so we, our genes let us, uh, allowed us to survive in a fairly difficult environment. And, you know, it wasn't all that long ago. We still have those genes and we're set up by evolution to, to exercise. We are not programmed by evolution to sit around and watch TV or play games on our computers or even just sit at desk. We evolved with the genes to move. And when we don't move, we pay the price because we're not, we're not wired that way. It's a really important point. I don't know if, if a lot of people know that, sure, humans can hunt large game by piercing them with spears, but you can also, we're the, we're the great ultra marathoners of the animal kingdom we can chase down deer hour after hour until they drop yeah it's called persistence hunting and uh one of the people who's written eloquently about this is uh daniel lieberman at harvard who uh, who i interviewed extensively for the book and he says yes we evolved to to run for long periods of time we may not be as fast as a lion which obviously was bad news for us but uh we could chase animals until they drop before we did and that had a number of benefits besides dinner one of the theories that that I find very plausible is that this running actually was kind of pleasurable uh, for the hunters, maybe not the gatherers, but exercise stimulates a chemical in the brain uh, that some people call miracle grow for the brain. And the chemical name is BDNF, which stands for brain-derived neurotrophic factor. In other words, a chemical made in the brain that actually acts on the brain and acts in, uh, specifically on the hippocampus. And one theory is that while we were out chasing animals, that triggered a lot of this BDNF, which was one of the factors that allowed human brains to grow, because we do have relatively big brains for our size. So it all fits, it all fits together in some really cool ways. So right, right up front in the book, you write, the main thesis of this book is that exercise is the closest thing we have to a magic bullet against aging. I mean, if, if exercise was just discovered and approved by the FDA, it would be a miracle drug. It would be a miracle drug, and people would be making lots of money off of it. Um, but luckily, it's free. I mean, you don't even have to join a gym. You can walk. Um, it really is available to almost everyone. Obviously, there are people with mobility problems um, and big orthopedic problems. And if you've just broken your hip, you're not going to be doing a marathon right away. But um, for most people, there are still some body parts that you can move and you can move aerobically. 
uh, which is actually the best exercise going. And one of the key points in the book, because I think some people are intimidated by the idea of starting an exercise regimen, but one of the key things is any exercise is better than no exercise. That's right. I mean, in general, more is better than less. More intense is better than less intense. But anything is better than nothing. I mean, if you get the book, you can flip to the end with all the citations. And there are literally hundreds and hundreds of them. And you can look up the studies if you want. But one of the studies that that showed this the most clearly was back in the 80s, an exercise uh, guru uh, named Stephen Blair put 10,000 men and 3,000 women on treadmills and gave them all sorts of tests, VO2 max, which is volume of oxygen maximum. In other words, how much, how efficient your heart and lungs are at grabbing oxygen from the air, mixing it with the food you eat and pumping out energy. And he found that the the fitter a person was, um, the better in terms of all-cause mortality. In other words, the risk of death from anything. But just getting out of the least fit category was enough to have really big health benefits. So you don't have to be a marathoner. You just have to get off the sofa. And for some reason, a lot of exercise has been kind of considered to be a, like a punishment almost, or maybe because we did calisthenics in school and they were boring. But, you know, you talk about in the book, just going for a walk is much more pleasurable than doing it on a treadmill in your basement or whatever. Somehow, along, somewhere along the line, we humans got the message that exercise is not fun, or maybe even just calling it exercise, you know, downgrades it in our emotional vocabulary. But moving, actually, biologically, you will feel better. And um, it, it is actually the natural thing to do. Sitting around really isn't that natural. There was a great study several years ago where uh, European scientists came up with nine major hallmarks of aging. And our westernized lifestyle has basically screwed up all of those, making us age faster than we should. And exercise can influence all nine of these in the right direction. And this is a really basic cellular level. This is not just uh, exercise because people are telling you to. This, this is your body. This is the biology lined up in favor of exercise. Why, why don't we talk about that? But before you do, I just want to mention you, you have case studies throughout the book and you had a hundred and something year old, 102, 103 year old, year old cyclist. The French guy. Right. And wasn't he, at the age of a hundred, wasn't his, um, I forget which aspect of his cardiovascular health, but he, he had the fitness level in that respect of a 50 year old. Yes. And I mean, he, he's a really great example because he's so old. And they, the um, the French researcher, whose name I'm blanking on right now, took him to the lab and actually got him to do more and more intense uh, cycling on a on an exercise bike. And he was able, even at this late age, to increase his cardiovascular efficiency. I mean, he got better and better and faster and faster. At over a hundred, you know, pe- people look at somebody like that and they say, "Oh God, I don't even want to do that." But the point is, you you don't have to. But that shows that the human body can do it. I mean, to most of us, that's an outlier. We wouldn't dream of being such a, a world class athlete at age one hundred. But it shows it's possible. So the rest of us don't have to aim that high, but just aiming, you know, a quarter that high would be great for us. Absolutely. So let's go through those. Uh 
those nine things that you were mentioning. Sure, and we don't have to go in depth in, in all of them or any of them, but um, I'm sure you have a very sophisticated listenership, so they hopefully would be interested. So the nine hallmarks of aging, and this is from a 2013 uh, German study, are genomic instability, telomere attrition, meaning your telomeres get shorter, epigenetic alterations, loss of proteostasis, deregulated nutrient sensing, mitochondrial dysfunction, cellular senescence, stem cell exhaustion, and altered intercellular communication. It's kind of a mouthful, but um, it's fascinating stuff. And there's quite solid research on a number of these showing that exercise really changes things in a positive direction. Uh, Do you want to talk in depth about a couple of those aspects? Yeah, I'd love to talk about um, the uh, epigenetic alterations because that's that's really cool. I'm sure your your listeners know, but just in case, epigenetics refers to changes in what genes get turned on or turned off. They're not changes in the DNA itself. The changes to the DNA itself are called mutations. These are changes to signals that tell a gene to turn on or off. And one of the things that influences this is a process called DNA methylation. It just means that a chemical cluster of things called a methyl group lands on various spots um, on the genome and turns genes on and off in, in sort of recognizable patterns. And there was a really cool study a few years ago by Swedish Swedish researchers. They took a bunch of pretty hunky-looking guys and did muscle biopsies on all of them. That's, they took a little piece of muscle tissue from both legs of each guy, put them in the gym, and they rode stationary bikes for about 45 minutes a time, three or four times a week for, I forget, three or four months. Then they redid the muscle biopsies. But the trick, the catch of this whole thing, um, the bike riders only pedaled with one leg. The other leg just stood, sat there on the floor. They're just the, the foot was on the floor. So they exercised only one leg. And at the end of the study, the DNA methylation pattern in that leg, the exercise leg, was completely different from the DNA methylation pattern in the non-exercise leg. And translated, that means the epigenetic clock uh, showed different results for the two legs. And in essence, the exercise leg was younger than the non-exercise leg. It's really pretty cool because it's like a perfect controlled experiment. Same body, same food, same sleep, same job, same everything. The only difference was exercise. So, I mean, that's just like the epitome of a great controlled experiment. And you have other studies in the book about cyclists using only one leg, and you uh, you have an increase in the number of mitochondria in the exercise exactly. leg. And it's the same thing. They, the contracting muscle, the muscle that's working through a whole, for mitochondria, through a whole, you know, complicated but fascinating series of chemical steps, um, ends up mass producing mitochondria. And mitochondria, just for the record, of the, are the organelles inside cells that produce ATP, which is the energy molecule, adenosine triphosphate. And the more of these mitochondria you have cranking out this energy, the better your entire fitness is. In fact, some doctors think we should do tests of mitochondria to see uh, to gauge somebody's age, because the more mitochondria, the better, the younger you actually are, despite whatever your chronological age is. And there's a difference between physical activity and your level of fitness. 
Yes. Physical activity is your behavior. Uh, you're walking or swimming or whatever. Fitness is really a sort of a medical test. They can put you on a treadmill and see how long you can go without having a heart attack or dropping dead or short of that. It's, that's really a medical measurement. Physical activity is, is the behavior which leads to the changes in the medical measurement. But fitness is a, a better measure of uh, what scientists are trying to study. And we do, different people do have certain genetic advantages, but you can increase your fitness regardless of how bad a genetic set of cards you got dealt. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, Claude Bouchard, who's a wonderful scientist in Louisiana, he's a geneticist, has found that, yes, some people are genetically predisposed to benefit a lot from exercise, specifically aerobic exercise, and others don't have that same genetic makeup. So they don't get quite the benefit that the luckier people do, but they still get a benefit that's, that's that's worth getting, even if it's not as big as for the other people. Uh, let's go back to the nine things. Let's talk about some of those other aspects. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about uh, telomere attrition? I think um, your listeners probably know what telomeres are, but again, just in case, they are uh, special little chunks on the ends of chromosomes. They're like the little aglets or plastic things on the tips of shoelaces, and their job is to keep the the uh, chromosome from unraveling in a bad way, which keeps everything neat and orderly when it comes time for cell division. So we're all born with nice, big, long, healthy telomeres, about 10,000 base pairs long. Um, but as part of the normal process of aging, we lose the length of these telomeres. They get shorter and shorter and shorter. And that means that you can use telomere length uh, as another way to gauge aging. Although this this is a very this turns out to be a controversial thing. Some scientists think the whole telomere story has been overhyped, but others are are quite convinced that um, it really is a good measure of aging, and uh, we should pay attention to what's happening with our telomeres. In terms of the question I was most interested in is whether exercise can either keep the length you've got or even possibly add back length to uh, telomeres. That data is is mixed, um, and there's certainly no uh, causal studies, but, but correlational studies suggest that people who do exercise a lot are able to maintain telomere length longer. Again, this is a hot controversy, uh, and scientists themselves disagree but it's it's worth paying attention to, and I guess I should confess that I fell prey to the pro side and ordered one of those telomere kits online, and I stuck my finger and got a little drop of blood and sent it off and waited and uh, got the results back, and it showed that my telomeres were pretty good. That I, according to that, my telomere test, I was ten years younger than my chronological age. Uh, which, of course, was very encouraging. And then I went on the company website and I noticed that the people who had gotten the similar results, like their telomeres showed they were younger than their chronological age, all thought this test was the best thing going, totally accurate, totally wonderful. But the people who thought the test was really bogus and inaccurate all had showed that they were older than <laughs> they thought they were. So again, a word to the wise. Um but telomeres itself are, are um, a fascinating and very hot area of scientific research. You know, if you work out, if you if you uh, go to the gym regularly, or if you're a runner or a cyclist, you know the the effects are visible. 
It's easier for you to control your weight. Maybe your muscles get bigger and your, you know, your, your skin glows. But all the stuff that you can't see that's going on on a cellular level that you get out of exercise. I'm thinking about my doctor, 73 years old. He does not look particularly athletic. He's uh, an unassuming guy. And he recently completed, I think it was his 23rd marathon. And he has plans to keep doing marathons, you know, for the foreseeable future. And as I say, he's 73. So when you look at him on a cellular level, he ain't 73. That's totally right. And um, interestingly, you know, centenarians, which are people uh, over 100, and now there's a new uh, category called super centenarians, people over 110. Um, some studies show that their pattern of DNA methylation, which we were just talking about, is much younger than their chronological age. I mean, they show at that level much more youthfulness than um, their chronological age would suggest. And if you've ever met one of these people, they're cool. They're very vibrant. Um, and they're, they're just so encouraging, kind of fun to be around. And so, it's, it, yes, your your chronological age is is almost uh, not worth keeping track of because your biological age is so much more important. You know, I, I don't think I've ever met anybody over 110, but I, did, I have met people over 100. And one of them was Ernst Mayer, the great evolutionary biologist. And he had a genius exercise plan from the time he was young, and that was an hour a day of walking. And I say genius because when he was young, that meant four miles. And when he was 100, that meant whatever it meant. But, it, you know, he was still getting his hour a day of, uh, of an aerobic workout. Listening to you say he walked for an hour a day, people, other people who are listening may think, oh, God, I don't have an hour a day to do it. But uh, that makes me free associate to one of the things I learned in the research for this book, which is this um, high-intensity interval training. People call it HIT, although there's two I's in the middle, H-I-I-T. And one of the main excuses that people have for not exercising is they think they don't have enough time. Um, I'll get back to that one in a second. But one way, if you feel like you don't have enough time, this high intensity training, you can get a lot of the benefits of a longer workout in much less time. There's a whole bunch of different protocols for it. But basically, one of the first ones is you, you work out really, really hard, like your maximal, uh, you're really pushing it. It's miserable for 30 seconds. And then you have a three or four minute recovery period where you walk slower or possibly even not at all. Uh, or just do something very gentle, then back again, 30 seconds, really fast, and then slow back and forth four or five times um, for 45, for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. Well, it doesn't add up if you take a four-minute recovery, but if you take less of a recovery, you can get a huge benefit in 10 or 20 minutes. Um, so that really helps a lot of people who, you know, they're busy with their kids and their jobs and everything. If you have 20 minutes and you do a high-intensity program, you can get a lot of the benefits in much less time. But the other thing I'd really like to mention is the New York Times um, wonderful columnist Gretchen Reynolds had a piece. Um, some researchers studied 32,000 Americans and did what they call a time-use study. They kept track of 
how people uh, spent their time and they, they, you know, they allowed for work and doing the laundry and getting dinner and putting the kids to bed and, um, you know, things that you, you have to do that you don't have a choice about. And most people had at least four and a half or five hours of time that they could choose what to do with. People were choosing to watch television, but they could have chosen to exercise. So actually, most of us have more time than we think. And even if we don't have time, you could do the high intensity stuff. I mean, you're, you're really literally talking about less than 15 minutes a day for the high intensity. Yes. There, there's a wonderful researcher at McMaster University in Canada, Martin Jabala, and he has a number of books and studies on this. I think his latest one is the one-minute workout or the one-minute uh, exercise program. I mean, that's a little extreme, but people can get a lot done in 10 or 20 minutes uh, if you do the intensity stuff. And here's a quote from your book, high intensity interval training can actually reverse decades of sedentary aging. So it's not just the fact that, uh, you know, you're going to maintain or, or improve your fitness a little, you're actually de-aging on a cellular level. Yeah. I think there's a book called Younger Next Year, the same idea. Um, yeah, we're, we're, you know, and the other thing is it's never too late to start. You can start right now, even if you haven't exercised for 30 years. And, you know, obviously it might make sense to check with your doctor first if you think you have heart problems or some serious uh, issue. But basically, you can walk, you can get up off the couch every hour and stand for two minutes. I mean, minimal things, parking at the far end of the parking lot, you know, getting off a a stop early on the subway or something, you, you can kind of ease into it gently and kind of fool yourself until you actually realize you kind of like it. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's this constant sitting. I mean, the, the most depressing study I came upon uh, in the course of researching this book was one, I think it was from 2014. They had almost a quarter of a million Americans and they did do the right thing in the sense that they exercised seven hours a week, which is an hour a day, which I try to get. Uh, and often do get. But if those same people sit for seven hours a day, you're still at uh, an increased risk of cardiovascular you know, illness and mortality. And you know, here, here I am thinking I'm a good doobie, but if I'm sitting at my desk for seven hours in a row, that's not good. You, you have to get up even if you are exercising. And one of the things I really liked about the book was just how many studies you looked at. Yes. Practically every chapter has hundreds of studies. Yeah, I mean, I, I do really document everything. And, um, and the science is, is so strong. Um, you know, you're, you're a science writer, and you know that most of what we write about is, you know, on the one hand this, on the other hand that. And in, in the exercise field and the molecular biology of exercise, everything, almost everything lines up in the same direction. There's no, you know, well, maybe it's all, you know, it all points to the molecular advantages of exercising. So yeah, the documentation was fun. It was just, you know, one study after another, kind of all pointing to the benefits. Talk about the 10,000 steps, just a, a half a page in the book about that. But so many people I know are walking around trying to get in their 10,000 steps every day. Including me. Um, but I was very encouraged when um, one of my longtime good sources, I'm in Lee at Harvard, she's in studies exercise, and she told me that the 10,000 steps actually came about 
because in Japan, the, the icon for, uh, I guess for walking is sort of equal to 10,000 steps. So that 10,000 steps kind of became the norm. But actually, and I take heart from this, uh, 7,500 steps a day is all you really need. So for people who are sort of set on 10,000, that's a great thing. And the more you do it, the better. But you're doing pretty well if you get 7,500. If you can't ensure that you're going to get 7,500, don't just sit on the couch and get nothing. Get get 500 steps. Get 1,000. And, you know, one thing, um, and I get no money from anybody, I have to say, including the people who make Fitbit and smartwatches and stuff, but having something that tells you, or your cell phone, that tells you how many steps you've taken, I find incredibly motivating you know, and it just sort of, you think, oh my God, I've only got 5,000. I really better, you know, walk around a bit. So you do it and then you can pat yourself on the back. And it's just, it's ridiculously simple, but it's kind of like positive reinforcement and and it really works. It helps. It makes it sort of fun. And, and, you know, we talk about all the chemical changes that, that accrue with exercise, but there's just kind of like a little pride thing that's sort of separate from whatever's going on biologically. Oh yeah, the virtue question. I, I was pretty good today. And the uh, psychological benefits. Oh, yes. Um, I have two chapters in the book on the brain, one on cognition, you know, the intellectual stuff, memory and thinking and all that, and the other chapter on mood. And um, uh, th- these two chapters were the most fun to do and the most um, surprising to me because I learned that this chemical I mentioned, uh, BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor, and some call it miracle growth for the brain, it's actually the key player both for improving cognition and for improving mood. And the, the studies on this also just line up beautifully. Um, as we exercise, our brains pump out this miracle grow. It goes to various places, but especially the hippocampus. And it, and it creates what they call uh, neuro, hippocampal neurogenesis, which is new nerve cells growing in the hippocampus. And there are before and after tests, before people exercise, exercise and after. Cognition is usually better after. Lifelong exercisers have much less risk of Alzheimer's. In fact, um, some data from Canada suggests that if everyone who is currently not active became active, we'd have one in seven fewer cases of Alzheimer's. I mean, it's a huge, it's the number one, exercise is the number one modifiable risk factor for Alzheimer's. The effect on mood is also very powerful. In fact, some of the the newer studies suggest that uh, we have to rethink our old uh, understanding of what triggered serious depression. Um, For years, we've thought it was a lack or a deficiency of the neurotransmitter serotonin. But what actually seems to be the problem is low levels of BDNF, this miracle growth for the brain. And it turns out that BDNF and serotonin work in tandem. And one of the ways that, that people came to this recognition is uh, knowing that when, when depressed people start taking Prozac or some other drug that increases the availability of serotonin in their brains, um, it often takes five or six weeks for the good effects to kick in. But it turns out that uh, BDNF can take that long to really uh, contribute to a substantial uh, growth of neurons in the hippocampus. So it may be that BDNF is the primary actor and it works in conjunction with serotonin. So it's really fascinating. We really need to use our bodies the way that 
nature wants us to. In the way that our ancestors did without calling it exercise. They called it getting dinner. <laughs> so uh, is there anything I haven't brought up that you want to mention? Um, maybe uh, just the whole question of cellular senescence, um, which just means that uh, as we age, our cells tend to senesce, which means get older. But what they're actually doing is they're still alive. They're not dead, but they... Um, they're not dividing anymore, which cells normally do. And the bad thing that they do when we have a lot of these so-called zombie cells in our system is they pump out chemicals called cytokines. And these, these cytokines are pro-inflammatory. So these zombie cells are sitting there sort of doing nothing good and pumping out these pro-inflammatory chemicals that trigger chronic inflammation all through the whole body. And chronic inflammation actually is the underlying problem for a lot of the diseases that get to us as we get older, um, including atherosclerosis and uh, insulin resistance, diabetes, neurodegenerative problems. Inflammation, when it goes on too long uh, and becomes chronic, is really a bad actor. And these senescent cells uh, contribute to that. And there are actually a bunch of drugs in the pipeline to nudge these cells to commit suicide, um, a process called apoptosis. And um, these drugs, you know, I don't know when they will be freely available and you know what the side effects might be. But the idea is to get rid of these zombie cells because they're pumping out so many pro-inflammatory chemicals. But in the meantime, before those drugs are available, climb a flight of stairs. <laughs> No, it's, it's totally true. You know, obviously there are drugs in the pipeline that mimic exercise and drugs that are aimed at combating aging, but those drugs would only aim at one one piece of the puzzle, whereas exercise, the, the really big thing I learned is exercise gets all these molecular changes and not just one, you know, and just aiming a drug at one thing, uh, who knows what it's doing to the other things. But exercise has a very coordinated effect on all these molecular processes, and it's all in the good direction. Check out Judy Foreman's webpage, judyforeman.com. The Q&A menu item has a lot of good info and is most of Chapter 15 of her book. Open the blog menu to find recent writings about exercise during this pandemic. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where all of our coronavirus coverage is out from behind the paywall, available free. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.